Computer. Hello, welcome back. I'm Roger Royce, host of the 10,000 Startups Podcast, Legal Strategies for Startup Success. For each week, we bring to you a discussion with a, a thought leader in the space and an expert on the topic in an area of startup company law that would be of interest to you, the founder. And this week, we're going to talk about bringing companies into the U.S. from the United Kingdom. And since our speaker is Andrew Pinnell, he's a partner in the Investment Management Practice Group in Haynes Boone's London office. Uh, since our speaker is in the U.K., we're going to focus on the U.K. side of this. So this is of interest to any startup, non-U.S. startup company that wants to come into the U.S., but of particular interest to United Kingdom startups that want to come into the U.S. Uh, in some manner, maybe even a flip in here completely or just establish a presence in Silicon Valley, which we often see. Now, as I said, Andrew is a partner in our Haynes Boone office in London, and his practice focuses on advising venture capital, private equity, and corporate clients on venture and growth capital transactions. So emerging growth and venture capital on the other side of the pond. So, so welcome, Andrew. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do. Thanks, Roger. Um, thanks for inviting me on the uh, podcast. Um, yes, uh, so my name's Andrew Pannell. I'm based in our the London office at Haynes Boone. Um, as Roger mentioned, um, uh, my practice focuses predominantly in the investment management uh, segment and with a particular focus on the venture capital um, side of the industry. Uh, it's a mix uh, of working with venture managers, family officers, uh, in terms of their investments into the um, in, into the um, startups, and also acting for startup strokes emerging companies as they look to scale up their businesses, uh, both in the UK and Europe, and also as and when they are considering expanding um, abroad again, whether in Europe or, or across into North America as well. Um, and as Roger mentioned, I think there's a um, a, tre a trend certainly for aspiring and successful startups um, who are looking to uh, looking keenly at the U.S. market, given the size of the market cap, um, whether that's in the form of a um, organic selling to that market or, or actually setting something up from a from a legal presence perspective. Okay, and again, for those of you just joining us, because we're now live streaming on Facebook, sorry, I forgot to mention that, Andrew, uh, Roger Royce, 10,000 Startups Podcast, we're talking with Andrew Pennell. He is a partner in the London office of Haynes Boone. He does emerging growth and venture capital, and we're going to talk about bringing UK companies into the <coughs> United States. So, Andrew, let's start with kind of the base case. Um, we have a company that uh, has been very successful uh, overseas in Europe or in the United Kingdom. And they've got a product, they've got revenues, they've got traction, they might even have investors. And now they say, boy, I'll tell you that California and that US market sure does look tasty. Uh, I wonder if maybe we can just expand into that market. So here on this side, what I'd, I'd probably tell them, well, we're gonna form a US corporation probably in Delaware and you'll launch through that Delaware company. Uh, any particular issues on the UK side when they want to come into the US by doing that? Yes, uh, so I think I think probably the first question uh, before um, getting too far ahead and getting too excited is really 
uh, what what's the strategy for the business in terms of that expansion, uh, and what are they actually looking to achieve? Um, so th- there's probably three ways in which um, a UK company may be entering that market. Uh, the first way might be simply that they have customers that they want to serve in the US market. Um, that 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 would be the sort of basic sim- simplest way. The second might be uh, they, they might set up some kind of actual legal entity, a subsidiary. Um, or the third way uh, may be where, where they're looking for certain reasons to actually flip the UK headquarters and actually move it over to the US. Um, so those are probably the three sort of base cases. And depending on which which um, approach you're taking or the evolution of the business, it's, the issues are going to be a little different in each case. I think on the first one, um, that's obviously the lightest touch, and, and that may be a little earlier in the piece. And uh, just because you have a, an interesting business which is looking at North America, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to set up a presence, and you may may not wish to. Um, so there may be a few issues around that, but uh, you may actually take the decision that you don't even want to set up. Um, but you know there may be issues such as uh, looking at your terms of sale um, and are they fit for purpose. Um, the ones that you have in the UK in the US market and some of the the differences that may may occur in the UK versus the US. Um, and then set on the on the second case in the case of the subsidiary. Can I stop point, you for, yeah, for a second sure. on that? Because because that is really significant. The fact that the laws are just different. And mm-hmm. uh, for for example, I've run into this problem. Maybe you could talk a little bit about it. Uh, when you hire distributors. You know, here in the U.S. and California, we've got a special statute that sort of protects distributors from any unfair terminations. But I understand in Europe, it's way different. It's much more protections, contractual protections by regulation and law. Is that the kind of thing we might have to consider if, um, you know, for a U.S. (coughs) company hiring a U.S. distributor? Yes, I, I, and I think um, I think probably one of the one of the obvious areas there is that whilst people might think the, both the UK and the US are are quite similar given their common law jurisdictions, which is which is true, um, I think uh, both from a legal perspective but also culturally they're quite different as well. So if, for example, you have a UK company looking to impose their terms and conditions um, in, in that US market context. Is that the right way of doing it? Um, for example, um, if if you had an English law government contract uh, with a customer and then something goes wrong, uh, then there would be a, a potential need to look to enforce that contract. Uh, you may be able to you may be able to uh, successfully sue for the case in the UK courts, uh, but how would you be able to actually then ultimately enforce that against the US counterpart? Um, Given that uh, there's no treaty from a from a court enforcement perspective, uh, now it may be possible, but it may be a case of having to, in effect, restart that litigation in the worst case, because uh, the courts in the US may have some discretion over that situation. I mean, one one way of trying to deal with that issue, obviously, you could consider: would it be appropriate in that situation actually to go with US law, or at least um, certainly take counsel in the US to understand that. Um, or the other thing to consider is um, putting something like an arbitration provision into the contract, uh, because there is the New York Convention, which which the UK and the US are, are party to. So I think that's one good example. I think the other area which 
um, is is obvious probably from a UK versus US perspective. Um, there tends to be a little bit more detail perhaps on the common law um, side around limits on liability in terms of you know how far liability can be um, exposure you can receive in the UK. Whereas I think in the US, uh, my understanding is that unless you put it down in, in the contract around exclusions, the potential for things like consequential damages, uh, which could result in not just immediate breach and um, uh, liability flowing from that, uh, that could lead to m- much more significant and unexpected liability and exposure um, unless you have very tightly drafted exclusion provisions in that. Yeah, absolutely. I've had a couple of clients get completely wiped out because they didn't have a limitation of liability or a cap on consequential damages. And it's like, hey, we would have made billions of dollars if not for your infringement. Yeah. Um, so that's significant, just the, the difference in laws. But uh, but let me kind of kind of cut to what everybody usually does because that's that's a whole other discussion uh, international law and how they interact. The typical transaction that I see here in Silicon Valley is we have a non-US company, <clears throat> let's say a UK-based company, and they want to establish a presence here. Not only a presence, but they want to move here and put their headquarters here and their parent company here so they can go get investment from from local VCs. And what we typically call the flip transaction. So we and and we start with a you know a UK based company. We form a Delaware company. We drop the UK company into the Delaware company in exchange for shares. So poof, now we've got all our UK shareholders now own shares in a Delaware company that owns 100% of the UK company. That's the the typical transaction. Uh, and I want to run through a, a handful of, of UK issues on that that I've run into. There's a whole bunch of US stuff we'll do another podcast on. But on the UK side, the one thing that jumps out at me when I do that is, first of all, if there are UK investors, wow, investment terms in Europe look way different than they do here. I thought US VCs were tough until I saw a UK shareholders agreement. So so number one, what kind of protections would you expect a UK investor to expect? <laughs> Not only in the UK company, but even when it flips into the US. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, actually two two things I just mentioned initially. The first one, and we can maybe talk about this in a bit more detail in a moment, but um, when, when you're looking to do that flip, um, from, at least from a UK tax perspective, in order to make sure that that flip is done uh, from a uh, non-tax leakage perspective, uh, it's absolutely critical uh, when when affecting the the, the share exchange that um, the, the terms of the existing investment in the UK vehicle are pretty much 100% mirrored from a class rights perspective um, when, when, when flipping up to the US entity. Um, so effectively, you're looking to simply mirror and interpose that that holding entity uh, from a substantive perspective. Uh, and if you don't, uh, the potential for um, inadvertently triggering a, a disposal for UK tax purposes, CGT, and or stamp duty leakage could occur. So first of all, there are some, and it, and it's quite strict from experience of, of doing that in the past. So that's one thing just to to watch out for. And we can talk can about that a bit more. For a minute, could you explain what that is? CDT. C- sorry, CGT, uh, capital gains tax. Sorry. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah. 
Um, yeah, so 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 it's it's critical to do that sort of mirror mirroring structure. Um, so if you want to do things from a tax efficient or tax efficient perspective, uh, then it will be necessary to uh, largely mirror those, those preferred rights if, if there are any. Uh, to answer your immediate question on what type of investor terms or protections that um, investors would typically expect um, uh, in a UK European context, um, I, I guess you're right, maybe the, the market is a little more conservative and particularly for early stage investors at the at the pre-seed or seed stage, um, as soon as you have an institutional check coming in, uh, typically um, you would have your classic uh, downside protections such as liquidation preference, normally a 1x non-participating liquidation preference um, in, in the case of a, a liquidity event. Um, you may have anti-dilution protection as well in the case of down round. Um, is it the same kind of anti? Like we have a usually it's broad based weighted average yeah. here, which is really kind of nothing. <laughs> that- uh, yes, no, absolutely, and people can get a little excited, but yes, generally speaking, it would be uh, a broad, a broad based weighted average um, ratchet as opposed to anything like a full ratchet or anything crazy like that. Um, so, so th- those are probably two of the more economic um, protections. Uh, the, the other protections, which which may cause some angst, perhaps maybe in the US, is uh, around governance matters. Um, so typically, the lead investor or the investor majority group uh, would have consent rights, uh, certain consent rights, normally split into two buckets: one across um, things which might actually impact on on the class class shares, the actual economics. Um, like future equity issuances, uh, exits, that type of thing. Um, and then the other aspect, more a little bit more operational, but around not, not increasing um, significant salary uh, raises or capital expenditure, that, 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 that nature of things. Um, I mean, th- those are probably the absolute sort of fundamentals that, that one would expect um, from a UK-European perspective. Probably one area which is maybe a little different and maybe we're a little harsher in the UK, Europe on, on the founders would be founder vesting tends to be relatively robust, I would say, in the UK, European, particularly for the earlier stage um, um, startups, uh, whereas perhaps in the UK, maybe, sorry, in the US, uh, perhaps that, that founder vesting, whilst it exists, it, it may be a little sort of sitting more on the company founder side. Yeah. Do, do, you, do you typically have buy-sell provisions in, in your UK shareholder agreements, meaning that, say, somebody is fully vested, but they leave? Does the company have a right to buy back their shares? Because we would not typically have that in the US. Yeah. So in the US, I understand that once you've earned it, you've earned it, um, generally speaking. No. So it, in the in the UK, certainly, and I would say this is across Europe as well, um, in certain circumstances, there is the ability to claw back um, to claw back shares if you are what they would call a bad lever, um, and and often it's the devil in the detail about you know what is meant by a bad lever. And you know if someone's been fraudulent or committed gross misconduct, it's one thing, um, but but a bad lever can even sometimes be talked about as someone who's a voluntary resigner. Um, so in that bad lever scenario, there is the potential um, to, to lose the entirety, so vested and unvested. Um, equity um 
as opposed to just just the uh, the unvested, which would normally be uh, where the good lever uh, provisions come in. Yeah, I've, I've run into those bad lever provisions before. It's it's a little surprising uh, sometimes, but so we got to watch. Yeah, and it's and yeah, and it's it's actually the it's interesting because I'd say that probably like the US, um, many term sheets you could probably guess ninety five percent of the provisions or even ninety nine percent. But if there's one area which almost always gets negotiated, it's around vesting. So when people talk about oh what's market, uh, it, it often gets negotiated one way or another, depending on the nature of the investor. I would say. Okay. <laughs> Um, anything else as a corporate matter that tends to be problematic where we get our U.S. parties choking on <laughs> when we do these deals? Um, for in, ter- in, the, in the context of the flip, um, I think um, I think probably that the main thing is, is what I mentioned around uh, when we're looking at the, the tax aspects and making sure that uh, there's that mirroring element. And so if you've got, and, and so much of this will depend on what the capital structure looks like, um, if you have a fairly plain vanilla ordinary class uh, capital structure um, um, or, or even just say one class of preferred, um, it's it's not so complicated, but uh, you may well have convertible loan notes in there. Uh, you may have a safe, even a UK equivalent of a safe. Um, UK has safes also? Well, we 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 sort of imported the um, the concept and UKified the safe, if that's a word, um, in certain cases. So it's sort of a variation on a convertible in many senses. Um, so so it, so that that's probably where it gets more complicated. And I would say that the, the mirroring element also is is something to keep in mind because depending on the size of the cap table. If you've got a relatively contained cap table, that's fine. But where you've got a business that's been operating for a little while and it has a significant number of shareholders, which many startups do, um, just the sheer practicality of being able to implement these provisions is difficult. Because generally speaking, um, if you're looking to affect one of these share exchanges, you're going to need to get everyone to sign up to these provisions. Um, So logistically, um, that that can be a real challenge, I would say, in my experience. Everybody, wow! So we can't just force these on people; they really have to sign up to it. Yeah. So, so I mean, one 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 improvement actually the, the the British Venture Capital Association, the BBC equivalent of the MVCA um, in the UK, uh, some of the latest provisions that we, we've now drafted in some provisions around holding company reorganisations. Um, so I think. That that hasn't always been in the documents historically, but I think that will help things and and perhaps you know including a power of attorney to go along with along with those provisions uh, in the event that um, you know a minor shareholder is either being difficult or alternatively just isn't available and, and not 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 involved. Uh, so I think that will help you know practically speaking to implement these things. Yeah. Well, that's um, yeah. I mean the, the other the other area which I don't know you, you were maybe going to come on to uh, was around um, em- employees and incentive plans. That was um, my next question. That's where uh, okay. it's another trap, I think, in these deals. I run into real problems with that because it seems like the UK concept of equity comp is a little different than the US concept. Mm. Yeah, so I think um, again, it'll slightly depend on the nature of the transaction. But in in that in that in that flip uh, context. Um, well, taking a step back, first of all, in the context of 
early stage businesses, um, we we generally have in the UK um, um, an ESOP, which is uh, which is what we call EMI um, driven. So it's it's basically UK tax driven uh, scheme and is intended for UK employ- employees to give them uh, some fairly significant tax breaks around their. Uh, in effect, the main one being that's receiving some options um, and not having to pay any immediate tax on them up front. Uh, and then when it comes to actually exercising options, then being able to uh, be taxed on only a capital gain as opposed to on income tax, which is obviously generally a, a much more significant uh, tax bill. Um, so there's there's a significant benefits at the early stage of being able to uh, receive those options. Uh, and they're also, it's a little more flexible than the US as well in that, um, in theory, a company can grant options with an exercise price at purely nominal value, whether the company is got any value in it or not. You know, in certain cases, it's an early stage company. Um, it may not have any value, or you can argue that it's got very little value anyway. Uh, but even if it did have value, you can, in theory, uh, um, grant those options at 0.001, for example. Um, whereas Which you can't do in the U.S., by the way. Like you, you can't said, do you the, yeah. Section 498, which constrains us on that. But go ahead. Yeah. So so, so I think in the context of um, a, 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 if you were setting up a subsidiary entity in the U.S., um, obviously the those U.K. and my options would continue to apply as, as, as before. Um, and that shouldn't have an impact uh, from from that UK perspective. But what we would normally do is we would run a parallel scheme uh, of what we call unapproved options. Um, and so non-UK employees, that could be UK consultants who don't qualify for this EMI status, or it could be US or anyone else who, who's employed elsewhere, uh, could potentially be granted options in, the, in that UK parent. Um, if, if that made sense from a US tax perspective, which it may or may not, but uh, you could do that sitting alongside um, and then it would be an analysis from a US perspective at, at what market value, looking at 409A um, valuations, et cetera, um, as part of that. Now, I understand that um, there may be an argument, for example, taking restricted stock instead, um, mm-hmm. but that's more of a, a US discussion to be had. Um, but there is at least flexibility uh, to build, build that alongside the that, that EMI UK scheme. Um, if we're talking in flip territory, normally um, our option arrangements will have in them uh, provisions which re- which which pre- which allow for replacement options. Um, okay. So uh, sorry, can you still hear me? So yeah, I've got a, yeah, yeah. Yes, um, sorry. Um, yeah, so uh, they will have uh, provision for replacement options. So there is the ability to roll over those options, um, if that makes sense, um, into that uh, non-UK or whole co-parent uh, and be granted options in the in the equivalent uh, parent company as well uh, for, for those UK employees. So again, provided you structure it correctly, uh, that there is, there is a manner in which you can you can preserve that. Uh, EMI status. So it is doable, but it's it's important to look at that carefully. Okay, great. Yeah, because that is one of the big issues here. Well, I, I yeah. think we've kind of covered the big topics here. Is there anything else that 
should be top of mind for anybody, especially a UK company coming into the US that's, that wants yeah. to do this. I mean, we've we've covered a lot. <laughs> Anything we missed? I think just the one the one other thing again, back on the sort of tax, I guess, and, and incentives is um from in a UK context at least, uh uh, there, there are a number of tax incentives that startups uh, potentially receive uh, from early stage investors, what they call EIS and SCIS um, relief. Uh, and the, the idea being to encourage high net worth to put money in on a completely at risk basis. Um, in return for that, UK taxpayers who are high net worth are able to receive um, significant tax breaks on their own income. Uh, either 30 or 50 percent depending on the on the nature of the investment or size uh, and also CGT relief um, free free of tax as well at the end um now again in the context of that flip arrangement that that needs to be considered very carefully um to make sure or do your best not to um not not to cause issues with that s strict eis treatment um and whereas in the case of the share for share exchange relief I mentioned. Um, normally, you would go and get a ruling from the U- from the UK tax authority HMRC, but you don't have to. Uh, but if you're looking at um, an SEIS or EIS qualifying company, it's actually mandatory to get HMRC clearance ahead of doing the flip. Um, so that's that's again very important from an investor perspective preservation. Yeah, absolutely. Tax is always a driver in a lot of these deals. Yeah. Uh, so we want to pay attention to that and preserve good tax benefits. Well, okay, Andrew, I really want to thank you for, for giving us that overview. It's, it's a little more complicated uh, on the non-US side, as usual, than on the US side, but this is good to know. Uh, I guess the last question is just want to make sure people know how to find you uh, if uh, they're considering this transaction. So um, how do we find you? Uh, well, I think uh, um, if you if you Google Andrew Panel at Haynes Boone, um, you'll, you'll you'll find me on the website at Haynes Boone for sure, um, and I'm obviously contactable uh, through email or, or, or other such uh, communications. So yeah, well, um, if anyone has any questions um, from this podcast, very happy to answer anything, uh, and we'll we'll look forward to working together, Roger, on on these type of transactions in the future for sure. Okay. Thank you very much. This is Roger Royce with the 10,000 Startups Podcast. We'll see you next time.